Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we are going to be talking about the joy of failure. Ah, the principle by which I live my life. But before we launch into all the failure, let's have some news. I hear you were brave and ventured north of the Watford Gap. I did, all the way into the faraway land of Scotland. I ventured all the way to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer. And this has a relevance to our show because there was not one, but potentially three shows that have a bearing upon our topic of horror. Mm. The first of which was Providence, a show about H.P. Lovecraft and his many friends. H.P. Lovecraft, played by Simon Mader, and his many friends by Dominic Allen, with the Allen being the clue to one of his main friends being <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe. Now, this was billed as a comedy horror show. And I was thinking, hmm, Life of Lovecraft, comedy. How's that work? Well, I can only tell you it did work fantastically. It's all over now, but they will be doing the show again. It's at the London Horror Festival on the 29th to the 31st of October 2018 at the Old Red Lion Theatre. Exact timings aren't up at the time of recording, but tickets will be available from the LondonHorrorFestival.com and you'll find more details in our show notes. Our friendly neighbourhood Concrete Cow is rearing its big stony head on the 15th of September. I have no idea what the hell I'm going to run for it yet. For those who haven't encountered Concrete Cow before, this is the one-day gaming convention in Milton Keynes, run at the old bathhouse in Wolverton. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes with all the details there. But um, I believe all three of us will be in attendance. Yes, and I think all running games. It goes on all day. If you're in uh, anywhere within a stone throw of Milton Keynes or even further afield, then do come along and play some games on the 15th of September. Yeah, the venue is just next to Wolverton train station, so if you can get the train, uh, it's about two or three minutes walk from there. Really convenient. As interesting as all that was, however, we did interrupt you there, Paul. Do you want to tell us about the other two events at, at Edinburgh? Yeah, briefly, there was also a Robinson Crusoe of the Soul show, which caught my attention because it was about... Arthur Macken. So what's the link between Robinson Crusoe and Arthur Macken there? Well, I saw the show. I don't really know. Okay. Uh, I think he was kind of a castaway in London, far from his home. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I can That's see kind that. of what I get. I'm not sure. But it was a, again, it was a fantastic show. On a Sunday morning, I wasn't really feeling it. And then I turn up, and it's just one guy, one-man show, which, to be honest, I usually avoid now. And he had guitar and keyboards and made, like, loops. And he sang over them and talked and it was a kind of a hypnotic performance about Macken, a bit dreamlike sort of capturing the essence of him and his work it was a very really nice relaxing show it wasn't a kind of in your face sort of style like so many of the things at Edinburgh are mm. um, um, so if you ever get a chance to see it, if he does it again it was a fantastic show yeah, I mean, that, that approach sounds absolutely perfect for Mackin. Mm, yeah. Was, a lot of his stuff is very dreamy. It was lovely. And last of all, I must just give a mention to Urban Death. This is a troupe from California. Zombie Joe's Underground Theatre of Death. 
who just did about an hour show in a darkened room, the lights would come up and there'd be some vignette of horror before you. The lights come up and there's a witch in a costume, quite short, sort of cackling, and she walks towards the audience and then suddenly boosts to about 10 feet high. I'm not quite sure how she did it. <laughs> Presumably there was another guy stood behind her who boosted her up, but it was pretty impressive. That lasts maybe 20 seconds. Lights go down. Lights come on. There's a naked man with an apple in his mouth and this massive guy behind him with a big grin on his face sharpening a knife. And various things like this. It included quite a lot of nudity and some scenes which I don't really feel comfortable talking about on the podcast, uh, which were definitely quite strange. But again, if you ever get the chance to see Zombie Joe's Theatre of Death, Urban Death, then check it out. Your life will never be the same again. Afterwards, they said, if you want to come and see us in the foyer, we'll be down there. And my daughter Emily's like, uh, no, I don't want to ever see those people again. <laughs> Just leave. <laughs> we both love the show. But uh, yeah, if I ever see that short, bald-headed woman from the show again on any venue i'm just gonna leave because uh, she was just too creepy uh, to be fair i think a lot of people who encounter us at conventions feel the same way i like to think so scott and back in the world of the internet i hear something on this discord thingy has happened uh, regarding necronomicon well, not Necronomicon the convention. This is a, a separate thing also called Necronomicon. So there's a Discord server set up by a bunch of Call of Cthulhu fans in the UK called Necronomicon, or The Necronomicon, I think they now call it. They had the idea about a month ago to set up a charity event, a live streaming event, to raise money for leukaemia care. Unfortunately, the whole thing came about far too quickly for us to actually mention it ahead of time on the podcast. But what it was, was a 24-hour live streaming thing organised by a, a couple of you know, very enthusiastic Call of Cthulhu players, uh, Harry Mays and, and Elliot Beard. And they basically asked a bunch of uh, people who were involved with Call of Cthulhu to, to come along and uh, do things on the stream. I ran a game, John Hook ran a game, and uh, William Adcock ran a game. And there were also a couple of panels. Uh, Lynn Hardy uh, hosted the panels. And oh, we, we had a, a whole array of, of writers there. You know, people like uh, Simon Yee, uh, Joe Creel, uh, Bill Adcock again, uh, Christopher Smith-Adair. And, oh, sorry, I'm missing loads of people out. But, yeah, it was a really exciting event. Uh, raised about £500 in the end for the charity. And I really, really hope they're going to do it again next year. Uh, if they do, with any luck, we'll get a bit more warning and we'll be able to uh, hype it up a bit more on the podcast. And on to our main topic, the joy of failure. Is failure always a bad thing in RPGs? That really depends who you ask. What are we talking about when we talk about failure? We're talking about failing roles, failing to find the plot, failing to succeed in the overall mission, all of these things, right? Yeah. Any or all much. of them? Yes. Okay. And personally, I think that all of these things can be really good in a game. Sometimes they can be really bad, but even when they're bad, we can learn something from them and, and learn something about how to improve our games. Well, let's start off by talking about dice rolls and what happens when you fail a dice roll. This has become quite an issue over the past, I guess, 15 or so years, particularly of indie games. This idea mm. of failing a roll shouldn't stop the game. Failing a roll should still be fun. You should fail forward. But there's all these concepts of failure not leading to dullness, which is 
you know, I guess we don't want dullness, right? But what does this mean for our game about failing rolls? Usually a new set of dice as the old ones get tortured beyond an inch of their life. This is why you buy so many dice, right, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the first thing we should think about there is when do we introduce the possibility of failure into a game? Certainly, I mean, Paul and I you know, grew up in our gaming careers in the 1980s. And I think in that time, the way that we engaged with the mechanics of a game was very much, you know, rules is written and you, you roll for lots of things because the game tells you to roll for lots of things. And why would you have all these skills if you weren't rolling the whole time? So surely, you know, if you're climbing a wall, you should be rolling your climb skill for that, right? Does that mean that every time that you know a character uses a skill they should be rolling i tried to have a god open a door once in a game that felt spectacularly yes but that was active opposition it was a door it seems like a very gray area that the often the gm has to decide does this require a role or not so i think climb skill is a very key one here because if we talk about call of cthulhu we can talk about library use or spot hidden or accountancy if you fail those roles, you've failed to spot a clue. You've failed to spot that somebody is corrupting their accounts. you failed to, you know, something fairly mundane that doesn't cause you physical damage, that doesn't necessarily take your character out of the game. Failing a climb roll... Yeah, I mean, as someone potentially who... Potentially lethal. As someone who started gaming in the 1980s, climb always gave me anxiety because, you know, it's there on the sheet. Most people don't spend a lot of points in it because it's not something that comes up very often. But when it does, uh, you know, in, in traditional gaming, it's, as you say, very often a life or death thing. So it's the, the skill that you, you've probably only got you know 20 or maybe 40 percent in all of a sudden you know your ability to continue the game with that character depends on you making that role i think a failed library use role could be pretty harsh in the right circumstance i just keep having visions of the beginning of one of the opening scenes in the mummy with pulling the wrong book off the shelf or accidentally falling off the ladder and then all the bookcases come <laughs> crashing down. Well, well, oh, falling off a ladder? <laughs> Sounds like fine to me. Or, or jump to, to avoid taking damage when you do so. A combined but, library use stroke climb roll. But yeah, started by that keyword, or the keyword's library use. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. I mean, any, any skill could, particularly in a horror game, could lead to death. But climb particularly. And I was listening to a podcast recently from the designers of D&D over the years. And they were talking about the complexity that came in when somebody introduced the barbarian class and gave them the skill of climbing trees. <laughs> and it was like, well, that's cool. Uh, but does that mean all our other characters can't climb trees? Yeah. How do they roll? What do they have to roll to climb trees now? So when you give a character an ability, you have to think you're kind of, by default, taking that ability away from everybody else. But back to the climb thing. I mean, this morning... Well, I climbed the stairs to come to this room. Did I need to make a climb roll? Or climbing a ladder? I mean, I that's did. fairly straightforward. Do I need to make a climb roll? I did. They're steep steps. <laughs> At what point do you as a GM decide not to, to call for that exactly. role? Exactly. There's some very good advice in Unknown Armies about this. In fact, not advice, uh, rules. If it's a normal day-to-day -day thing and there's no time pressure, uh, then your character doesn't roll at all. Let's say it is something like climbing a rock face. The character isn't facing any opposition. There's no one shooting at them. So they're just climbing a rock face. Their character has got some skill in climbing. 
you just say, right, okay, you climb to the top of the rock face, it takes you 10 minutes or whatever. Whereas, you know, if you are trying to get to the top of that rock face before, you know, someone summons Azathoth, or, you know, you're climbing up there while, you know, a marksman is trying to pick you off with a rifle, then, yeah, all of a sudden that climb skill becomes much more appropriate. I mean, I remember you, Matt, talking about that disastrous climb skill that your climb roll that you had to make in Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Oh, yeah. And in that one, if I remember correctly, there was no time pressure or anything. No, nothing. It was just, hey, get up to the top of here, have a look at some fossils beyond it. I never saw the fossils. I mean, that kind of makes logical sense in a way that you would die from that. But in a game, where's the fun in that? But I think for many GMs, and myself included sometimes, you know, you look at the game and you look at what the players are doing and you think, oh, I haven't bought any mechanics in for a while. You know, maybe we should have a dice roll here. And you don't necessarily foresee the outcomes because you don't want to sort of stop and sort of ponder all of that. So you think, well, uh, Scott's climbing across this difficult, you know, icy crevasse or whatever. Let's, let's, uh, oh, well, uh, let's make a dice roll. Let's, because in my head as GM, that will make a bit of tension and drama. You roll, and now, oh, you failed. And I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, well, what's the logical consequence of that? He's going to fall to his death, surely. I don't know what else I'm thinking in my head. I don't know what else to do as GM. Uh, I guess, you know, it says D6 damage every 10 feet or whatever, and you've fallen 100 feet. Well, I guess you're dead. I mean, there's a couple of ways around this. One is deciding when you should be called for that role, as we've said. Another is discussing what the consequences for that failure should be. So you say, yes, all right, it's logical. You fall and fall to your death. Let's go back to Matt's example. You know, you're climbing that, that ice face going up to look at some fossils. If I were GMing that game and I wanted to introduce some tension into it, I might call for a, a climb roll to get up there, even though you know it's not an important thing, and throw some different consequences in for failure. So let's say you fail. That means you get, say, 30 or 40 feet up there. And then suddenly you can't find a, a foothold and you're, you're, you're stuck there. Maybe this means that your friends have to find you know, a way of, of getting you up to the top or down again safely and introduce a bit of tension there. Or maybe if I'm feeling like a real bastard, that's the point at which I'll have a shoggoth turn up. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, everyone else is down there on the ground in an absolute panic as, as this gelatinous monster is rampaging. You're stuck up at the top trying to work out, you know, can I help here? Do I want to help? Can I get out? I mean, what if this thing can climb? And all of a sudden, you've got a real incentive to just try to extricate yourself from that situation as quickly as possible. That's tension. And, you know, if on top of that, your character ends up dying as a result of, say, trying to scramble somewhere safe and missing a, a handhold, it perhaps feels a bit more earned than it does, you know, just getting from point A to point B. I think with, with that particular example, there was no way I was going to be getting out of it just because the dice absolutely hated me. It was, you fail the climb roll, so you know you're going to um, slip and let go of the rope. But let's see how high up the rope it is by the time that you get, um, by the time that this happens. So roll as percentile to see how high it is. Yeah, 98. I'm a hair's breadth away from the top of the, uh, the fucking cliff. Fall. Oh, so I could potentially grab hold of the rope as I'm falling down. Yeah, fail that check. Oh, he's quite a long way down, so you get a second roll. Fail that. Uh, maybe, maybe you land in water or land on something soft at the bottom like another investigator. Fail that. Right, you're on a stalagmite, you're just impaled, blood goes everywhere, it freezes before it hits the ground, and everyone else gets a sand check for the gory death. Then that goes right back to the idea of, you know, should that roll have happened in the first place? And, mm. you know, to me, patently, the answer is no. Yeah, it's, it blatantly didn't add anything. I quite like the idea of Matt's PCs 
beard on a stalic might actually that's <laughs> quite cool <laughs> but the, the only saving grace that made it a fun of at least a funny and memorable ando is that i got to give other people sand loss that was, <laughs> yes I, I think you do that quite regularly matt <laughs> but this was one of the ideas behind the pushed roll right so so if i'm stood outside my house and i want to climb up to the, the bedroom window and I fail the climb roll. Does that mean that I'm like almost up there and then I fall and take damage? Or does that mean that I try and sort of climb up and actually I'm just me, I can't climb a brick wall. I just find that actually you can't do it. You just stood at the bottom, you're sort of scrabbling about and you look up and realize that it's beyond your capability. You haven't fallen and taken damage. I can't get up to the bedroom window. Do you want to push it? Because, you know, it's going to be really difficult. But maybe if you really tried and committed yourself, you could try it. It feels like, yes, I'm taking my life in my hands to do this. The first roll told me it was beyond my capabilities, but now I'm going to do it. And I feel as a player then, I've given the GM license to say whatever they want because I've totally committed to doing this. Because so many times in games, I've seen players do something and then get totally screwed over by a misconception of what they were trying to do? Yeah, well, it's it's too easy to think that, you know, I mean, climb roll is the obvious example there, but in many other cases, it's too easy to think that the example of failure is going to be a lethal or a damaging one. Mm. And you know, in, in practice, those turn out to be, I think, pretty much the least fun options. When I fail at something, I want that failure to lead to entertaining complications, things that are going to engage me as a player. And, you know, just killing my character won't do that. So I'm playing a D&D game right now in 5th Ed with some friends. And playing D&D again, there's a lot of I make my roll to hit, uh, often with a spell because I'm a wizard, and I fail the roll and it has perhaps no effect. Hmm. And I don't really mind that because it's a fairly quick thing. We go around the table pretty quickly. Sometimes we hit, sometimes we miss. It's not like there's a five or ten minute build up to me making that roll and then it's a big disappointment. It's just sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail. And I'm fine with that. That's kind of how it how it runs, right? I guess it depends how much you've got invested in that role. Like you say, whether it's a build-up. It also depends how frequent failure is. I think an awful lot about the way fights work in Unknown Armies. In Unknown Armies, your characters tend to have very low skills because they're very rarely rolling against the skill itself. As I mentioned earlier, if it's a non-pressure situation, they don't roll at all. If it's a mildly pressured situation, they roll against the associated stat, which tends to be a fair bit higher. But in high-pressure situations, like combat, they roll against the skill. And this means that there are a lot of failures. So you end up with with the situation where, you know, say a melee combat in Unknown Armies is pretty much, you know, swing, miss, 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 dead. Mm. And it gets really fucking tedious. I think constant failure with nothing happening can become pretty dull. I mean, it happens in this D&D game I'm playing. Yeah, we get some failures. We, I guess mostly successes. And this is one of the reasons for making combat opposed in Call of Cthulhu, that there's not always a success that comes out of it, but often one side or the other mm. will get the upper hand. What annoys me more is games, and there's a whole number of games that do this, particularly, say, in combat, where it's quite hard to hit. I roll, I succeed. Yay! And then the GM says, oh, but the NPC gets to roll to dodge or parry or whatever. And 
oh, they've succeeded. So your your success that you've strived for for the last four rounds, actually it missed. It's yeah. Like, oh, great. Yes. Yeah. Particularly in a situation now we just talked about where you have low skills. Yeah. And, yeah. It just seems to suck the fun out of it to me, yeah. at least. The counter argument to this is always realism, but I, that that's you know a, an argument for another time and another episode. You know whether realism has any place in RPGs for a start, but also you know different people have got different ideas of what's realistic, and sort of saying, well, you know, of course, you know, I'd, I'd get a chance to block that. That doesn't mean a that it has to be a separate role, and and b that it has to happen that way at all, because unless it's making the game more fun, why the fuck are you putting it in there? In a game mechanics term, sometimes failure to make skill rolls or failure to achieve something can actually lead to a boost in your character's powers in terms of gaining XP or uh, skill points and so on. In Call of Cthulhu, it's succeeding at skills that gets you skill ticks, which can then lead to a dice roll, which ironically then you have to fail, to gain skill. Hmm. Then in some Apocalypse World games, you get ticks or XP, if you like, for failing skill rolls. Yeah. So sometimes it's this this concept that, you know, when you try and fail, you learn. And sometimes it's when you try and succeed that you learn. It kind of feels like maybe it should be both in life. You try things, you succeed, you learn, you fail, you learn. I like the Apocalypse World approach for two reasons. Uh, One is... I mean, it does make sense to me that characters learn from their failures. They learn what not to do. And I, I think that a lot of us in life learn from our failures probably more than we do from our successes. But I, I think, more importantly, it takes some of the sting out of failure. I think this whole learning from failure thing being a sort of silver lining is, you know, it's one of those um, Facebook memes to make everybody feel better um, <laughs> that we tell ourselves, oh, I failed. Oh, but you know what? That's great because I'll learn from it and I'll be a better person. You can <laughs> learn from failure, but I think you can learn, you just learn from experience, whether it's success so, or failure is the hard reality of it. So shoot for the moon and if you miss, you'll end up tumbling forever in the cold, hard vacuum of space. <laughs> oh, that's a meme I do remember. <laughs> It's the way I feel when people say, well, it, was, it wasn't meant to be. Although, if I remember right, especially from when I've played Apocalypse World as the original Powered by the Apocalypse game, the skills in which you can increase are only selected by another player. It's not the skills, it's the stats, but yeah. Uh, yeah, because I was yeah. thinking that I remember when I played Apocalypse World, I felt very much that my sheet wasn't changing when everyone else at the tables was because I was never failing the right roles. Um, and I think that's that's an imbalance, at least with using the Call of Cthulhu example, that it applies to all of your skills. That doesn't happen. I think if you're yeah. familiar with Apocalypse World, you can game it so that you play those things a lot to get the skill points, which is what I've seen people do at the table. Yeah, um, when, if, it, if it doesn't fit what's happening in a story, though, it does feel very artificial. And yeah, no, feels, I agree. It totally yeah, does. Shit, basically. Um, so, Matt, have you found in games where you fail to find a clue that it breaks the game that it stops the game no generally i wouldn't say that it's because what would normally happen under a supervision of a good key mg per ref whatever is that that information comes to you by a different route or if you try to look at a situation differently or even at appear at another relevant location where they think oh yeah this could potentially pop up here this is very much scenario design and is usually mitigated by the GM or keeper, because the GM or keeper, they aren't 
just a passive participant in the game. They're, they're presenting the game to the players. They're presenting the story. They're facilitating all the NPCs and locations and so on. And inevitably, there is stuff they have to make up. That's the job of the GM, right? And it's also their job to kind of keep things flowing along, I think. If there is that one sort of hinge point, like you said, Matt, any keeper or GM worth their salt is going to see that you know, well, they've missed that. I need to just represent it somewhere else. And there is, to some extent, I know where we played Walker in the Wastes, um, that we had a long stretch uh, where we were really scrambling around in the dirt trying to find some way of being able to deal with the situation that the campaign revolves around. And after months, we finally got our first handout. And you saw the joy of, kind of huzzah! <laughs> yes. Arms raised around the table. We got a handout! <laughs> That's always a good sign that you're on the right track if the GM has got an actual paper handout to give you. You're like, ah, this is, he hasn't just made this up. This is an actual clue. <laughs> but as you say, versatility in, in knowing how to repurpose or reuse clues. No, well, not even, I mean, when we say clue, that often uh, refers to the method for passing on a bit of information. But, you know, perhaps not even the clue, but look for other ways of getting that information into the hands of the players. There's something I, I keep seeing references to online, I don't know if either of you have encountered it, uh, the three-clue rule, which is this idea that for every bit of information that you want to get into the hands of the players, you should have at least three different ways lined up of getting that to them. Sometimes just having accommodation for the players not finding that, clue it depends how essential it is um, but sometimes it's a clue which will give them a bonus in their story so they'll know about the monster up at the old house whereas at the moment they just know about the old house it'll allow them to prepare better for the the threat when it comes but there's also the idea of automatically getting clues as well. So, you know, if, if a clue is important enough that you, know, you will just automatically get it, you know, regardless of what your character does. Personally, I think this is something that's got to be handled very carefully because, you know, it can take away player agency and it can lead to a very flat game. I remember listening to an actual play of a Trail of Cthulhu game some time back where it did feel like the investigators, every time they walked into a scene, automatically switched their clue hoovers on. And, you know, if there were any clues there, they, they would just automatically pick them up without any action or decision on the player's part. And it's sort of, you know, right, you're in the right place, you automatically notice out of the corner of your your eye a bit of paperwork that you know, has got this bit of interesting information on it your eyes are drawn to it you get that and there was none of that pesky role-playing stuff getting in the way of them getting these clues so yeah i think you've got to be very careful about how you handle that i mean just because you're automatically giving a clue to the investigators doesn't mean that you shouldn't role-play that well i guess this leads to the question of how closely should the game follow what the gm has got in their head Hmm. And I've had players say to me after a game, oh, I can see we kind of messed up your plans there. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, well, I guess, you know, it didn't go perhaps as I anticipated because they did something I hadn't expected and it leads the game off at a different angle and maybe I improvise around that. But that's great. I mean, I guess if they did something which totally stymied the game or blocked it in some way, that you know that that wouldn't be great. But if the game is fun, then it, there there is no wrong way of playing it. It does seem to reveal an expectation from some players that 
you've already got the story in your head and they're happy just to play through it. And to be fair, there are a lot of old scenarios that are written that way, that, you know, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. You know, at some point the players get to make a roll, then they're building towards this set piece at the end, bang, done. Hmm. But as a GM, I'm always much more interested when things don't go as planned. And as a player, I'm always much more interested when things don't go as planned. So let's let's think about the way things like this are presented in media. I mean, you know, a classic heist film. There are always going to be complications that come in. So, you know, let's say you're trying to break into a bank and, you know, you've made an arrangement. You've got a security guard on the payroll and he's going to open the door at just the right time. Uh, but, you know, what what you don't realise is perhaps, you know, that's the day he's been caught drinking on the job. He's there in the bank manager's office being told off or, you know, fired or whatever. And it's someone else on the door that day. All of a sudden, you've got an unexpected complication which your characters have got to deal with. Isn't that a lot more fun than just, okay, yeah, we go in, yeah, we do everything as planned, we get out, it's done? Again, depends on the group, depends on the context. If it was me in that particular situation, I'd probably say uh, give whatever code word there is to the rest of the group, write it off, wait until the guy's on the door the next day or we solve this problem and literally stop the whole plan right there rather than just trying to go into it and say, oh, we'll, we'll play it by ear. No, that shit doesn't happen. Well, I think setting up an expectation and then changing some of the points is what makes humour or drama come alive. So even if you do turn up, Matt, and you you take on the the bank heist, presumably they're going to be rolls, dice rolls. Yeah, I'm dead. (laughs) But if there weren't dice rolls, you'd be able to just maybe just carry out your plan, right? If there weren't Mm -hmm. mechanics to allow for some sort of complication or failure. Presumably, you know, you've got to get past the guard and maybe that requires a sneak roll. You've got to break in and disarm the alarm system and that requires some sort of skill roll. So these skill rolls are points of tension that if there are points of potential failure there, that's where we're sweating and, you know, mm-hmm. watching the there's the red and the green wire and he's, which one's he going to cut? Is it the right one? You know, it's the dice roll. It's the, the tension in the film. It's particularly weird in role-playing games because in a story, in a film or a, a, a book, you can introduce these elements of tension even though you know, you know everything is going to work out all right, the hero is not going to get killed. You can add these elements of you know, will he or won't he cut the right wire and you know damn well he'll cut the right wire because otherwise the story ends there. But, yeah, it's a question of sometimes how do you add those elements of tension into an RPG? Because you don't necessarily want to have, oh, they cut the wrong wire and the game ends there. Yeah, because as a kid, I watch Star Trek every week. And James Kirk, you know what? Spoilers, but he always survives. Yeah. (laughs) And every episode, you know, maybe his life's under threat. And as long as he hasn't got a red shirt on, we know they're going to be fine. But, you know, there's him and the Spock and the Scotty and there's, the, there's all those guys and they don't die. But they still build up tension. You have watched Star I, Trek Generations, haven't you? <laughs> I don't talk about that, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, this, this reminds me of a discussion I saw, I think, on RPG Net many years ago, where someone was talking about sword and sorcery role-playing. They were saying, oh, yeah, I really want that tension of anyone can die at any moment that you get from the Conan stories. And, you know, someone said, oh, you mean like all those Conan stories where Conan died? Yeah. Or at the start of the Conan film, when he sat on the throne talking about his younger days. He got uh, better. Huh? He got better. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, but 
you know, so so like you say, Scott, it, there's, there is a somehow, I don't know, we can do it in fiction, not Game of Thrones, I guess, but there's this expectation that there's only tension if my player character in a role-playing game might die. There's a game uh, which I uh, yeah, particularly love, which handles this very, very well, which is Jaws and the Six Serpents. When you have a, a conflict, like a combat in Jaws and the Six Serpents, it comes at three different levels. If you, say, have a barroom brawl or a punch-up in a market square or something like that, where it's a bit of action but it's not really important, your characters go in there and they brawl, they smash bottles over each other's heads, and at the end of it, they just shrug all the damage off. That's done. Then you have more serious fights where perhaps fighting against a campaign villain or a major enemy. And in this case... Your character can face lasting consequences. They can be maimed or wounded or scarred, and they have some kind of lasting trauma if they fail. But they never die. And then you had the final ones where death is on the line. So this is like the climactic scene of the campaign. You and the villain are facing off on this rickety rope bridge over a live volcano, fighting at each other with swords. And at that point, if you fail, your character can die. And I think that's an interesting thing to reflect on and what we were saying earlier about the climb rolls. You know, there's, there's just a mundane climb roll, climbing up a ladder to get into a bedroom window, automatic could lead to death because the mechanics don't have any capacity to moderate that. Yeah. So the GM just looks at it and says, oh, that's 2d6 damage, rolls two sixes. Uh, oh, you're dead. So, yeah, I think that that Jaws of the Six Serpents model is a good one to bear in mind for most games. Is this role that's come up an important enough one to risk, for a start, just, just hurting a character, let alone killing them? So, yeah, that one, you're climbing into someone's window. Perhaps it's not a major part of the campaign. Maybe the characters are even following a red herring. They're breaking into the wrong house. So you know nothing particularly bad is going to happen, maybe a bit of embarrassment. At that point, they fail a couple of climb rolls. They fail the push check. You're not even going to inflict any damage. No, and I think you could have a, a range of kind of negative outcomes. It might be that later on when you get home, you realise you dropped your wallet and your ID in yeah. the place. It's just some lesser outcome which is going to lead to some intrigue or drama it's almost lazy just physical damage it's mm. just the obvious thing i guess because it's an integral part of most game systems which is just the obvious thing to kick players with i mean this ties in with you know what we were talking about in the death episode ages ago i think where it took me a long time of gming call of cthulhu to realize this but death is perhaps the least interesting outcome you can inflict on an investigator to build horror Having to deal with the lasting consequences of failure, having to deal with physical or mental harm, having to deal with the loss of loved ones, having to deal with the, you know, the, the fact that you know, you've failed to stop something really horrific happening, that is far worse than death. And a downside more interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, certainly dramatically. So if we take on a scenario and we've got an aim at the end of the scenario... Often as a GM, I almost feel it's my duty to make sure the players achieve that goal because that's the story. And when writing a scenario, I kind of think, well, I need to make sure that, you know, they get through to the end of this. Otherwise, it's going to be a bit of a damp squib. I mean, do you ever feel that? Almost never. Oh, no, no. <laughs> if I'm particularly thinking of convention games here, if I'm writing up a game with an end in mind, the only 
end in inverted commas is that I'd prefer all the investigators or player characters get there to experience it. Whether they survive it or not is completely irrelevant. It's the fact that they get to enjoy the whole of the game rather than only a portion of it. Well, you see, I'm not even that worried that they'll reach you know a, a the end because, well, for a start, I very rarely have a specific end in mind. Well, when I when but, I say the end, I mean the end of the session, not the end I have prescribed that they get to. Yeah, mm. but as long as they reach a climactic scene of some kind that has an emotional impact, I'm happy with that. I, I I don't care if they, you know, they have their confrontation against the big bad, or I, I don't even care if they learn what's really going on. As long as something really dramatic happens at the end that they're going to remember, that that's all that matters. So that's we're talking about scenarios. What about campaigns, chapters of campaigns? You know, if they fail to achieve the outcome of that chapter. Does that stop them progressing on to others? Does a TPK, a total party kill, stop them progressing on to the next chapter? Do we need to kind of oil the train tracks to get them from one chapter to the next? Well, I think if a campaign fails in a really spectacular way, you know, if I were running a pre-published campaign and we got to, you know, a midpoint and there was a particularly spectacular TPK at that stage that, you know, left the players reeling, I might be tempted to end the campaign on that point. Um, on the other hand, you've always got the option with things like investigator groups and so on to bring another group of player characters in to pick up where they left off, perhaps, you know, learn the horrible fates of the previous characters and, you know, try not to make their mistakes. But I, I don't know. I, I'd almost feel like that would undermine some of the, the horror that we just created. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I think it really depends on, as Scott said, how it ends. If it has a good, satisfying resolution, then you can stop it there. Like, I know when we played Beyond the Mountains of Madness, we had quite a nice, fiery, blazing, burning Zeppelin ending. But from having read the campaign and gone through the book now that I'm running it myself... It's yeah. It, there's there's a hell of a lot more that could have happened after that. But I I think we had a hell of a memorable ending where we where we stopped it. Yeah, it seems like if the player group is leading towards a dramatic failure, then don't stand in their way too much. Oh. Just let them go out in a blaze of glory. And I particularly like the idea that you might say to the players, okay, well, do you guys want to carry on with this game? Because if you do, we could meet again next week. You could create some new characters. And they kind of find out about this group that have all just died horribly. I think that's quite a cool way. If you were running Master and Last Tap, I could see that running fantastically. Particularly if there's some way of them getting the collected clues from the last group or just finding newspaper reports. Because the published campaigns don't necessarily cater to this. But at the start of each published campaign, obviously there's a hook for the player characters. How they got into it. How they found out about it. But... Surely they're not the only six people in the world that are researching this thing, that have found out about this thing that is the subject of the campaign. So I like to think there are other little cliques of people around the world that could pick up that, you know, pursue it. We lose hit points in D&D you know, or whatever, but, you know, we, we drink potions and use spells and healing to get them back. And it's just a temporary loss. But with sanity points, it's all about failing and losing sanity points i mean how would you feel if as a player if you and your entire group made lots of sand rolls succeeded in them all and i know that sometimes there is a sand loss for even if you succeed in a roll but if nobody lost any sanity it would almost to me feel a bit of a disappointment or do you hmm. feel that way i've run games where that's happened where the sand losses have been fairly minimal stroke zero 
And it has felt, okay, yeah, that didn't really have the kind of impact it was supposed to. So you'd anticipated hitting them with some consequences of the loss of sanity? Well, just by sheer sheer statistics and probability, Mm. saying that they should have at least failed some roles. But what I mean (laughs) is it robbed you as, as the keeper of the ability to play that up. Yeah, it, it's. I think that's probably actually the closest, going back to the analogy earlier, of them completely succeeding in their bank vault plan. That they got through it without any complication and any hitch, and no one went wibble. Right. Mm. So that's all, yeah. So that's a lot lack of failure being a bit of a downside. Yeah, it would feel very anticlimactic to me. Yeah, and doesn't feel particularly genre, not genre appropriate, but doesn't back up the. The expectations of the said genre. I mean, that, that's that's actually an interesting point. I mean, we're talking about this very much within uh, the realms of horror, but genre has a big impact on this. So, I mean, that bank job thing we were talking about before, if you we were doing it as a, a sort of techno-thriller game or a you know, high-tech, say, Jason Bourne or James Bond-style espionage thing, the whole thing that's described by some people as competence porn, you know, the idea that you have these highly competent characters going in, doing things really well and, and looking really cool, while doing it you'd expect far fewer failures in a game like that and there are games that handle that much better i mean like the leverage rpg based on the tv series which i believe i've not actually played it but when your characters come up with a a scheme the idea is you sort of retcon it so as you're playing through it you sort of make your roles or you decide here's the complication we hit here's how i prepared for it here's how i overcome it so you still get that degree of tension but your characters don't fail Hmm. Sounds a bit pointless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel the same. Matt. I feel a bit this way about some of the cooperative board games because that seems to tie into failure to me. If I'm playing a board game, I like a competitive board game. I don't get too invested. Well, I kind of make sure that I don't get too invested in winning because I know as a kid being a bad loser isn't a good thing so i guess that teaches you something but if it's just purely cooperative i don't know it doesn't excite me so much have you ever played any competitive rpgs because there are some out there i haven't no i've played a few i mean there's one which i know of which i haven't played which is rune which is the mm. the, the viking game that uh, robin laws designed i i can't really comment on that one but I have played Aegon, which I think was John Harper who created that, where you're playing ancient Greek heroes uh, sort of striving for glory on the battlefield. And you're not fighting each other, but you're each trying to perform greater heroic feats than everyone else and sort of score up the approval of the gods. And So there's, there's a rating that you're trying to, a points rating, essentially, that you're trying to beat all the other yes. players. And for outright competitiveness, there is bizarrely the Dallas RPG, based on the TV series from the 1980s, which was designed by someone who who had previously designed tactical war games and brought that kind of approach to playing out the conflicts between the various characters in Dallas. So that you're you know sort of fighting over resources. You've got an episode premise, you know, and each person's got their own agendas, and you're basically fighting over control of NPCs and locations and and scoring points. I am and, intrigued to play this. Sounds and at nuts. the end of it, you have victory conditions. If your character achieves all of their victory conditions, you win. Who did you play, Scott? I played. Do you play uh, canon characters? You do. Yeah. I, I played Sue Ellen. All right. Yeah. 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 There's two aspects of gaming I really dislike there. 
<laughs> One, being competitive in art is an RPG. No, that's nothing that will ever hit my table. And the other one, and I've had this with, I think it was one of the old versions of Marvel or some superhero games, where you play canon characters. Mm. Again, yeah. that really just feels, well, I don't have a clue who these people are. I've never seen an episode of the TV series. I've not <laughs> read uh, two metres high towers of comic books. How the fuck am I supposed to know what these characters well, I, are? I, I did grow up watching Dallas, so I had a head start there. There's another aspect of failure, which I, I, I don't know if it still applies as much now, but seemed to be you know, much more a thing back in the 1980s, which is the cultural assumptions that you know we picked up perhaps as people who consumed British media in the 1970s and 80s compared to, say, American TV series, particularly in American films. In the UK, we've always loved our heroic failures. We love stories where people struggle against impossible odds and fail in the end. We love stories where good guys are betrayed and instead of coming back from that, die horribly at the end. And our media is absolutely full of those. Whereas the American media of the 70s and 80s, I mean, this has obviously changed in the modern day, was much more about more competent characters to begin with and always overcoming the problems they faced with a smile on their face. Yeah, I think some cultures and some periods of cultures are more into the, the hero and some are more into the underdog. I remember visiting Australia in the 90s and getting to South Australia, and the big hero was Ned Kelly. Oh, so wow. they were very behind the underdog. And just going back to that D&D podcast that I was listening to about the, the generations of D&D authors, one of them made an interesting point, reflecting on what you're saying, Scott, about the illustrations in the D&D books over the years. And he was saying back in the 70s and probably 80s too, it very much depicted the player characters running away from the monsters mm. and fearing them. But nowadays, the heroes, well, heroes, if you like, the player characters, are depicted as being victorious, as, as fighting off the monsters and being powerful and strong. It's a very different ethos. It's kind of a subtle thing I hadn't noticed. But mm. looking back, yeah, that does ring fairly true. And I think we see some of that now with Pulp Cthulhu versus mm. Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. That in Call of Cthulhu is, you know, as you were saying, player characters running away from the horrors and just trying to survive. In Pulp Cthulhu, it's punching the horrors in the face and winning. Way back in the day, thinking of this cultural difference on expectations or likability of failure, I remember when I used to fly out to the States quite a bit to go to the Camarilla conventions, the what was at that point the White Wolf fan club. And there was an initiative that was pushed there repeatedly at one convention after another, but the same head storyteller group um, saying, yeah, if, if you're in a situation, elect to fail, embrace failure and run with it. And I can probably count on one finger how many people actually engaged in that, mm. that the audience was very much, oh, this fucking shit again, that um, they're spouting. And no one seemed to really care. Or as far as I was concerned, victory was the only condition that they would accept. They did not want to elect and actively embrace failure. But that said, there are instances in games, obviously, where it is going to happen. When do we know when it has been a really fun, whether it be entertaining, dramatic, just generally an all-round good moment? The one that jumps out to me, I have mentioned on the podcast before, but it came as a result of the GM saying, OK, well, that's a fairly routine thing, but make a roll anyway. And if you fumble, there'll be a bad consequence. So I did. And 
everybody's looking at the dice as they hit the table and it's like 100. So I'm trying to lift this coffin down. I'm a fairly strong guy. It falls on top of me. I take some damage and that would have been okay. But then the GM also introduced some ghouls in this graveyard in the, ne in the very next part. And that just led to death for my character in that game. And it was an ongoing campaign, so survive. Well, I didn't survive, right? I died, but you know, picked up another character as you do. But that was a great episode, and it was a lot of fun. And I think having those character deaths in Call of Cthulhu because of failed roles and because of wrong decisions, it kind of spices up the game, I think. You know, we don't see many horror films where everybody survives all the way through and then it's all fine. You know, there, it is interspersed often with deaths. Yeah, and these failures, as we keep saying, don't have to lead to death. Um, I was in a playtest of uh, Lynn Hardy's Children of Fear recently, which we've just about wrapped up now. There was one point all oh, ages ago where we were trying to find out more about some weird stuff that was happening. So as I often seem to do in games i decided my character was going to go on a psychedelic vision quest and you know try to find some local psychedelic mushrooms take those and open up his mind to the weirdness that was going on yeah i think lynn had me make a natural world roll and i failed and couldn't find anything so of course me being me i pushed the roll and yeah, found some mushrooms when I failed. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, they got little pretty skull patterns on them. Well, no, no, I, I, I didn't die. But I mean, she, she very wisely sort of had me for a start get very sick, but also sort of wander off from the group and get into all sorts of other trouble and use that as a way of bringing other threads in. It, it sort of did bring home to me, you know, th this idea that I particularly like pushing roles in Call of Cthulhu because I know. If I fail, then something interesting is still going to happen. And I would always much rather something bad but interesting happened. And I really like pushing Cthulhu Mythos roles, particularly spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos roles. So if my character is trying to bring about a magical effect, uh, and, and you know, even if he has a comparatively small Cthulhu Mythos skill, I will always push that role because I know... Even if I fail, particularly if I fail, something spectacular and interesting is going to happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we have come to that time in the episode where we thank all you lovely, lovely people who make all this possible by giving us money via Patreon. The money you give us allows us to pay for all the running costs that this podcast invokes and just keeps us on the air. So thank you all. And we have a few new people to thank. Yes, starting off with Ivika Folnovic. Thank you very much, Ivika. Indeed, thank you very much, Ivika. Thank you, Ivika. Yeah, I hope I have your name right. As always, the uh, disclaimer, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. Then moving on to the $3 level, we would like to say thank you and cheers to Matt Willing. So, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Matt. Hey, cheers, Matt. Also, cheers go out to William Fisher. So, cheers, William. Well, thank you and cheers, William. Cheers, William. And cheers and thanks to David Kirkby. Thanks very much, David. Cheers, David. Thank you and cheers, David. Oh, and we have new $5 backers. Regular listeners will know what this entails. When someone is foolhardy enough to back us at the $5 level, we sing to them. Oh, do we sing. 
And our first song today goes out to the wonderfully named Cthulhu Bob. So thank you, Cthulhu Bob. And, well, we hope your dark master down in Rillier accepts our offering. Thank you very much, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bob. You are cold, Cthulhu Bob. You are cold. You are cold to us. You are cold. We have called you forth to thank you. Thank you. Well, listeners, we are producing marvels for you, at least for those of you who are backing us on Patreon. The next issue of The Blasphemous Tome is in the work. This will be issue four. The Blasphemous Tome is the fanzine that we put out for all backers of the good friends of Jackson Elias. We'll put a link in the show notes that explains exactly what you get when you back us, because different levels get you different quantities or types of the tome. We are also accepting submissions for the tome. If you have a piece that is 500 words or less um, of writing, or a bit of black and white artwork you think that we'd like, or that you think our listeners would like, and you'd you'd like to send it to us, we would be very interested in seeing it. Um, Again, I shall link to this in the show notes. The deadline for this is the end of October, because we want to try to get this out by the end of the year. Meanwhile, on social media... I see we have a new iTunes review from Sinner the Poet. A great resource. This is a detailed, thoughtful and passionate podcast. The three hosts have a comprehensive discussion on a particular topic in Call of Cthulhu. They cover the salient points as well as explore compelling alternatives on the subject of the episode. I highly recommend this to anyone who wants to run Call of Cthulhu and wants a deep dive into the lore of the game, tips on being a keeper and insights into the community surrounding it. Thanks for all your hard work, guys. Well, thank you. Uh, that, that is lovely of you to say so. And if anyone else feels moved to, to write a review for us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, we would very much appreciate it. I mean, this is how people tend to discover podcasts, by seeing reviews like this. It, it bumps the podcast up rankings and uh, makes them more visible. We not only like the nice things you say about us, but we like the effects they have. So thank you. And we also have some feedback on our episodes about the new Masks of Nalathotep. Perry Mihalakos on Google Plus said, I'm planning on running this, not only as written for Call of Cthulhu, but also integrating with Harlem Unbound and Cthulhu Confidential. Yes, I can see running this with Harlem Unbound particularly would be uh, yeah, absolutely perfect, because we did flesh out the New York chapter a fair bit, or in Harlem in particular, to try to make it a bit more of a, a living place. But that is no substitute for the absolutely fantastic work that Chris Bivey did in, in the Harlem Unbound supplement. By bringing all that stuff in, yeah, I, I think you can turn the New York chapter into a, a campaign on its own. And Chaosium will be publishing the second edition of Chris's book, Harlem Unbound, in the near future. Also over on G+, from Rasmus Ramo Streeth. Please invite Lynn Hardy back on the podcast. She's great! Well, we all think she's great too. Um, and hopefully we will get her back to talk about something else called Cthulhu-related before too long. Well, her campaign, The Children of Fear, will probably be out next year, so that at the very least would be a good chance to get her back on. And to wrap things up, 
What are our final thoughts about failure? In the spirit of embracing failure, do we ever actually fudge things in our game? I mean, not just dice rolls, but particularly dice rolls. But do we ever actually tip the balance to try to ensure success, to try to avoid those nasty failures? Matt, you like fudge, don't you? Mmm, fudge. Actually, one of the books I'm looking to get, because um, the Princess Bride RPG runs on fudge. It runs on uh, fudge? Yeah. Yeah, he's lots of clotted cream and... Oh. Yeah. I think the only time I would fudge rolls was when I was... Or when I am a GM. And if I've rolled enough damage to have killed a character outright, like, ten minutes into a scenario or halfway through, then I'll generally go, yeah, that's significantly less than what the dice are telling me, just to make sure that it's fun for the poor sod on the other end, on the but receiving you, end of the blow. Are you talking about a convention game there, though? I mean, if it were a... Yeah, a, a convention game where yeah. someone's taken the time and effort and probably financial cost to get there and to sit down at the table and have fun. I'm not going to inflict that fake fate on them because that's shit. But that sort of takes us back to what we were talking about earlier in this episode, which is whether you should be calling for that role that risks killing them at that stage. I'd argue that instead of that early in the game, putting them in a position where it's life and death, that you should you know, find other things to do, other ways of putting their character in danger or other ways of escalating tension without putting death on the line at that stage. Because you know, if you do that and then you fudge the dice roll, I, I'd argue that, that actually ends up undermining the tension of the game. I'll expand upon that by saying that I've only ever had to do that twice that I can think of, and both times it's been a result of actually play actions that have resulted from the player's actions that have brought it to that situation, not an encounter that I've thrown down at them. I think sometimes it's difficult depending on what the situation is. Sometimes in a scenario it starts off and there's they get involved with uh, in a fight or with a big bad monster or something, and with the mechanics of the game as they are, then death is an option. Um, so again, that's partly scenario design and so on. But I guess occasionally i have looked at events in a game and said okay well let's just retcon that a little bit it's not necessarily to do with failure sometimes that's just that i've misinterpreted what someone said or someone sort of says oh actually i've got this thing mm. um and we forgot about that and you're like oh yeah actually that would have played out a little bit differently let's just jump back two minutes and just replay that little bit would i fudge dice rolls on the whole no i don't well, I say on the whole, I would say no. I would try to set things up such that whether the dice rolls good or bad, the outcome is something that the game will accommodate. And I think that's the reason that people end up fudging rolls, because they feel that, oh, I failed this roll, that means death, so we need to do something else. It, somehow it's going to be something that's going to break the game in some way, either by taking the players out or by stopping the game, and I need to fudge the roll. I I don't know it seems a it seems like there's a failure of the game at that point if you're having to to fudge the dice rolls yeah i i, I never fudge rolls uh, anytime i i run a game i always make all the rolls out in the open i if possible i'll tell the players what their chances of success actually are i mean it, it depends whether it's appropriate for the game so it adds that degree of tension where they see me rolling the dice and they're trying to work out whether it's a success or a failure i roll damage rolls out in the open again because i i feel like that that adds a degree of horror and tension to the game what I will sometimes fudge, and I don't know if fudge is the right word, is I will sort of spontaneously rewrite adventures on the fly. 
not not just in terms of improvising around things that that aren't written into the scenario, but I, I'll sometimes you know perhaps tone down the consequences of an encounter, or I suppose that is a form of fudging. But I, I feel like that's a transparent enough thing that it isn't going to undermine the player's fear or, or concerns about consequences. Well, I think in the shared space of the game, if you like, it's about what people have said is established. The stuff on the GM's page that they're looking at, to me, is mutable, it's changeable, yes. it's moldable. But once the GM has sort of said, you know, there's a brick wall there, you know, there's a brick wall or whatever, right? It becomes concrete when the GM has put it out into play or when it, when one of the other players says something that's credible that, that would change the what's going on in the game. But I agree with you, Scott. You can change things in the game. So there's, you know, time's moving on. We need to kind of get to the end of the game because I want to finish it tonight. Well, let's just miss out this scene. Let's not have these guys turn up. Let's just skip that. And I won't tell the players that there was supposed to be something else happening here. We'll just edit it and skip on a scene. So it's almost like you're both the author, the editor, you know, all in one, on the fly. And the supporting cast. Yeah. Well, I hope this show has been a success. That's kind of missing the point, really, isn't it? I I think you've just failed there, Paul. Has it been an abject failure? Well, it's a good night from me. Yeah, it's a fairly dismal cheerio from me. And farewell from me. One of us has got to be upbeat, haven't we? Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com